I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Girl, real talk. This whole, it's a new year, time to reinvent myself trash is not the vibe for 2024. You can find someone who loves you for you, as you are. You don't need to read a stack of self-help books, only eat sad salads, or like start meditating at 5 a.m. to be ready for dating. So yeah, my advice is to download Bumble and find someone who embraces you the way you are right now. Let me know how it goes. The only conversation I was having with anyone about my addiction in the earlier stages was with myself, just writing in my journals, like, oh, I've got to cut down, or, you know, maybe, I, maybe I'm an alcoholic like my parents, or maybe not. And I, I had this really clear sense in the process of writing the book that, like, I have such compassion for this boy, like this young man who is really a boy, and he, he is me, but he's not me, too. I'm Jordan Kissner, author of the essay collection Thin Places, and this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. Dr. Carl Eric Fisher is a psychiatrist who specializes in substance abuse disorders and other addictive behaviors at Columbia University. He's also a bioethicist and the author of the new book, The Urge, Our History of Addiction. It's a really fascinating read, partly because he advances a few arguments about addiction that were new, at least to me, uh, including the idea that addiction isn't a binary state so much as a spectrum, and that it's less distant from other human behaviors and impulses than we might like to imagine. 
One of his primary arguments is that addiction as a phenomenon isn't a fixed condition, but something that's socially determined, something that's responsive to the society in which it manifests. The ideas we have about addiction partly determine what it looks like, he says. And so in this book, he undertakes a kind of historical investigation of all of the ideas that humans have had throughout millennia, with a modern focus here in America, about what addiction is, what it means, and what to do about it. This is all woven through with Fisher's own addiction narrative. When he was a medical resident, he was hospitalized for a substances-related psychotic break and went to rehab for his own substance abuse before resuming his medical training. He came on the podcast to talk about the moment he realized he needed help and the way this book came about during his recovery as he was trying to understand what had happened to him. Here's Dr. Carl Eric Fisher. So I had an experience when I was early in my residency training in psychiatry where I was working really hard to protect my identity and my my self-image as somebody who was really high achieving and had it all together. And I was using alcohol and stimulants, primarily alcohol, primarily Adderall, but also cocaine in a, a really unhealthy way to the point that it caused a psychotic episode. And thankfully, I was on vacation at the time uh, so nobody was hurt in my medical practice, but I, I progressively and very rapidly entered into this delusional psychotic state where I thought I was caught up in a holy war and the forces of light and darkness were somehow arrayed around New York City and I was playing a part in that, which was, uh, you know, the content of that uh, uh, episode was really closely related to themes and issues that were deeply important in my own life. I had been a Zen practitioner at that point for uh, almost 10 years. So the the notion of um, like morality and purity and doing good and not doing evil was in uh, practicing meditation as a way to uh, work with those themes is really important to me. But I, I, uh, I was in training as a psychiatrist. I would like to think of myself as someone who was curious about patients, but didn't have anything even close to that experience of uh, stepping so fully into those types of delusions. And um, one thing that it revealed to me, I think, that I didn't, I didn't write about too much in the book, but I think it's there at least implicitly, is... Uh, uh, one of the primary sins, I think, in um, this long history of addiction is the way that we have tried to essentialize the condition, meaning to make it into a thing, to try to uh, treat addiction and probably to a certain extent other mental disorders as if they were some sort of natural kind, an independently existing essence that can be neatly partitioned off from the rest of humanity. And that's the way we treat it in psychiatry, that someone is in a delusional episode or they're not. And my experience was I, I passed through multiple states that I, I had flashes of a divided self, one part of myself recognizing that I was losing touch with reality and then another part sort of committed to that alternate reality. Um, and so I, I, there's a way that that experience, even though it wasn't really about addiction, but the way my mind related to itself in the moment of passing the threshold to uh, psychosis, I, I, I think told me something about mental illness and even opened me up to 
uh, a, a sort of broader and more um, contingent understanding of mental illness to hold it a little more loosely and not think of it so much as a as a thing. Yeah, there's this incredible scene in the book when you're describing that that I guess week or few days of your life where you're, I think you're at home and you're saying, I know what crazy is and this isn't it. I know what crazy is and this isn't it. And that becomes almost, I, th- I think, as exactly the, the moment when you realize, oh, no, no, no this is it. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but the idea that th- things sort of, ex- you pass through multiple states or this, or the idea of having having an experience with addiction can happen on a spectrum um, where there is no clear division between what's normal. Normal is the word you're, you, you were saying in the book that you were wrestling with and what's not normal. Um, is That's a very challenging idea. It can feel like a very challenging and confronting idea that it's not just, there's not a clear line that divides the okay from the not okay. Um, and you write about wrestling with that really explicitly yourself when you were sort of at the beginning of recovery. I was wondering if you could tell me more about that. Yeah, absolutely. And I, it, my mind actually goes to um, even later in recovery where I've continued to wrestle with that tension. Uh, one way of putting that tension, I think, would be to say, I, I today still think of myself as a person in recovery from addiction. And it's very clear to me. And it's almost like I have gained membership in this club that, uh, and I'm not talking about a specific mutual health tradition like 12-step groups or anything, but just the this, the fact of being a person who has lived with severe addiction. Um, so I do feel like there's a, a sort of fellowship there where I feel a kinship, even across different recovery pathways and traditions. I, I connect with people in addiction recovery and there's a, there's a community and a, and a strength that comes from that. And simultaneously, I don't think that there's anything uniquely separate about addiction, that the things that go awry in addiction are universal to the human condition, issues with the divided self and self-control and the inability of projecting the will across time or this, this very American idea of perfect self-discipline and self-control and independence. Uh, and so I think both of those things can be true. And in that sense, it's that's one of the ways that addiction, I don't think, is fully compatible with a solely medical model. That I, I'm still a psychiatrist, and I, I think medicine has so much to offer, and there are many just very basic and concrete practical ways that we're falling short in terms of a, a medical response to addiction that would save lives. And the the line I'm trying to walk is that I think we need more than medicine too, and especially art and literature and history and uh, the humanities to to make sense and to to live with that seeming paradox that uh, it can simultaneously be a thing, be an identity, and also something not special at the very same time. Yeah, absolutely. How how did you? undergo that realization for yourself after being committed for a long time to the idea that there was a pro- there was problem and then there was normal and you were on the side of normal so it it came with my own recovery this notion of getting more comfortable with a, a more flexible capacious or spectrum 
understanding of suffering. Uh, you know, one element of my recovery was just seeing other people's stories. And it, it, I mean that both literally in face-to-face meetings back when we used to do that sort of thing, but also uh, um, reading and reading other people's accounts of addiction. And there's even an arc in memoir, I think, uh, where there was a really um, straightforward and classical model of addiction in maybe the earlier days of addiction memoirs where people said, you know, I have a disease and here's the thing that I have and we're all alike in the same way. And um, those are fine. And I think in some ways those are life-saving and um, uh, raised the profile and worked against stigma so that people were more willing to talk about addiction. So I'm not knocking those in any way, but there's there are also these more recent uh, addiction stories that I'm drawn to, like Leslie Jameson, who I know is on your podcast, or Melissa Phoebos, who uh, write in a way where addiction is in conversation with all of these other domains of human suffering and human understanding. So that, you know, that was one thing was just the process and writing the book and coming into contact with some of those understandings. Uh, and then also spiritual practice for me, that um, a big part of my recovery eventually came back around to Zen Buddhist practice, which uh, as I, I'm not a teacher, I, I don't intend to put myself out there as a, a teacher, but my understanding as a student is uh, that um, in that worldview also, addiction is nothing special. That I've even heard a, a Zen teacher say once, that if you're if you're not a Buddha, meaning if you're not enlightened and totally free, then you're an addict. Uh, so, and I I feel that, and I've I've since heard that from people in Christian traditions or in totally secular traditions, informed by simply uh, psychology. So I, I don't know. I don't I don't know that I have like an easy answer to like when when I got comfortable with it or when I when I passed my own thresholds into thinking about addiction in more of like a spectrum way. Um, but it just, it increasingly felt right to me the more converging information I got from all these different fields and domains and areas of study. Yeah. Something that I found compelling was your argument that actually so much harm is done by refusing to see something like addiction as existing on a spectrum because a person who is being negatively impacted by something in their life that they might be in a, in an addictive relationship to um, can say, rather than seeing themselves as on a spectrum of behaviors that they might want to change or experiences that they might want to rework with themselves, that they're waiting for, for the cliff to arrive. Or it's the, the, like the rock bottom idea that you talk about. Um, and I guess, I guess I wondered how, this arrival at an idea about addiction being something that is a is an expression of human behaviors that we all have or human experiences that we all have um, has changed the way you treat patients or interact interact with people who you're seeing in your practice. Well, it's helped me in a prior commitment I had, which is to meet the patient where they are in the ethos of what some people call harm reduction psychotherapy, but I think is just humanistically oriented psychotherapy, where it's not my job to impose a worldview or psychological model on a client. Uh, it's, it's my job to meet somebody where they are and help them to clarify their values and their worldviews. 
and then you know when appropriate uh call bullshit and challenge it sometimes sure uh but um i think it, it, when i stop and listen i hear people talking in this framework of addiction and recovery uh for for things far outside of the you know traditional stereotypical substance use problems that people talk about work and prestige and status and you know either i mean the the more obvious ones are things like eating or internet use but even even just our relationships to ourselves can be seen as addictive where where there's something volitional there in the true sense of the word addiction you know in in the process of writing the book i came into contact with um some of the etymology of addiction from 500 years ago when the word first entered the english language and it was so helpful to me because it wasn't about being taken over or possessed in any way it was a description of a universal human tendency to addict oneself to an action not a status and uh to um through the process of a devotion whether good or bad someone gives up some of their will gives up some of their agency and people talk about that with worry you know worry anxiety can be just a physical sense for example but worry can be a totally volitional act where somebody and i've had this experience and i think everyone has had this experience if they dig deep enough that um they're volitionally engaging in a, a sort of loop of the mind or at least a part of the mind coming back to a fear and trying to solve it or predict it or otherwise manipulate it so um when people use the word addiction casually like somebody will say oh i'm so you know i feel like i'm addicted to uh worrying about this thing uh i i, I think that can be a really nice route into you know exploring it, not does it or does it not qualify for some label that we put on it but you know it, what does that mean to you what what is the word addiction summing up for you about choice and volition and the way choice sometimes uh, becomes disordered. And I think that's liberating for people. It, it gives people, I've seen people who have adopted a sort of recovery um, identity for themselves, either explicitly or implicitly, to say like, oh, I'm in recovery from eating disorders, or oh, I'm in recovery from a really uh, disordered relationship to work. Um, and I think that can be really um, really helpful and clarifying for people um, as a nice model of a way of keeping in mind and relating to one's suffering. Yeah, I loved that section, which I think comes kind of early in the book about the etymology of addiction, that it started more like as a as a verb to addict oneself to, in, in this way that almost um, like to me, read, like it sounded almost, it made me think of the word adhere, like ad addiction, like adhere, like finding something that you want to adhere to. Um, that you want to bring close to you or that you want to, that kind of like, that you want to choose, that you desire, that you want. And then that, uh, and which, which to me was so fascinating, like that it started, that it was a verb before it was a, a noun. Um, and that it was a totally, well, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, as I, as I read it, it's like, a, it was a non pathologized verb. Um, it was not like, uh, a necessarily a bad thing it was just describing the human behavior mm -hmm. yeah that's my understanding and um or or at least that uh it, that was one understanding of the word addiction because it was in latin including neo-latin before it got into english and 
other writers have described. I mean, there are multiple book length and thesis length treatments of this. And one I can really recommend is there's this fantastic English scholar at USC named Rebecca Lemon, who wrote a book called Addiction and Devotion in Early Modern England, that I just want to give a shout out to because I think the literary crowd probably enjoy a lot of it talks in much more depth about say faust <laughs> there's a whole there's a whole faust theme i was hoping to kind of sneak into the book but never quite got there i got one little mention to the english faust book because they actually do use the word addicted oh um, tell me more what did you what what about faust did you want to put in the book oh just that um there's something about the faust myth in all its forms that uh keeps popping up in all these different um I mean, explicitly in stories about uh, medical technology, which is a big theme for the book, that um, well-meaning physicians and researchers uh, seem to be making a deal with some sort of unholy process uh, in retrospect, but in the moment, they're just sort of, uh, you know, kind of like blindly going along with their conditioning. Um, And uh, there's... A broader social um, anthropological story about technology and our relationship to technology, like this notion that civilization itself is somehow corrupting. And so by buying into uh, developments like the Industrial Revolution, maybe uh, societies as a whole are making a Faustian bargain where they're trading off on um, uh, future wellness for immediate gain. Um, even just, you know, concretely the Faustian bargain of the Industrial Revolution as the setup for climate change. And, but also just th- this one passage I talk about in the book, how um, at the end of the 19th century, there is all of this concern about the increasing pace of modern life, especially in the United States, which was in some ways the most rapidly industrializing place in the world with railroads and telegraph wires and all the rest. And people came up with these entirely novel um, mental disease concepts uh, that um, and we could count addiction as one of them. Uh, that basically said that the the constant pace and the flurry of quote indoor life is breaking people's brains, especially by the way breaking women's brains because they're not fit to live in this place. And that's that was an explanation for why women, according to some observers, suffered from more addiction. So yeah, I, I think that that sort of set of trade offs around technology and progress and reductionism is um, something that we see over and over again at both the individual and the social level. Um, But then to to draw a line directly to the, the, I mean, like there's a version of my thinking where I thought like, oh, maybe I'll have, I don't know, maybe I'll keep coming literally back to Faust and uh, have that be a through line in the book, which is, you know, one of those like late night brainstorms that uh, it, it could never possibly work in the book, but it was a nice, nice thing to hold in the back of my mind. Uh, let me, I guess, back up and ask, how did you decide to write this book? And how did you make decisions about the research that you wanted to undertake and then include in this project? As you're saying, the scope seems so broad. You could write, you know, there's yeah. you, there's everything from Faust to deep brain stimulation <laughs> in the whole history <laughs> of humanity. Uh, how did you narrow that down? 
I, I mean, I honestly, the honest question, the honest answer is that I didn't narrow it down is that I just did it. And, um, I had a great editor who was willing to read drafts along the way. And, you know, at one point I spent an entire month on the Protestant Reformation and writing these long, long drafts about theology that, and, you know, it's probably a paragraph or two in the final book. Uh, so it was really a process of just following my curiosity as driven by, a concern with myself. It was ultimately very selfish that uh, I wanted a, a broad, synthetic overview of history, but not just history as it relates to addiction. And it felt urgent to me. It felt like a missing piece for my own understanding of myself and my family. And the book wasn't out there. And so I, I thought of writing it as a mechanism for just protecting the time and almost like binding myself. This is almost, like this gets into self-control. It's almost like a Ulysses contract where I, I, I bound myself to the mast so that I would have to do it because the researching is really fun, but then actually getting it down on paper and making it make sense is, uh, and making it um, flow and, and try to connect with a reader. That's the real um, trouble for me at least. Uh, so I don't know. And the the point of it all changed over time. Uh, initially I thought that I would have something more determinative. I, I set out initially, even just within medicine and science, hoping that I would find the answer. I, I came out of rehab and I was relatively stable in my own life. And I, I, I wasn't going to relapse that day. And I still had this question, what really had gone wrong with me? And you know, how do I make sense of addiction? So I thought that maybe if I looked at some of the more philosophically and psychologically nuanced discussions of addiction in the academic literature it would make sense to me. And as I describe in the book, I saw certainly the, the gifts and the benefits of that mode of exploration, but also the shortcomings and also these little breadcrumbs leading back to the um, ancient philosophy and history of addiction. Um, but even then, even at the outset, I thought, hey, maybe I can pull it all together. And the process of the research of Going down all these different paths uh, helped me to, and this is a lesson I especially need as a, like a white male Ivy League med student graduate, is, um, is humility in, in terms of uh, explaining these complex mental and social phenomena. In a way, drug problems and addiction problems, I think, are some of the most complex social problems we have. It's not, it's... I don't think that addiction is that fundamentally different from other forms of mental suffering. And because there's this issue of volition and the the criminal legal relationships and the ways that societies have attempted to use uh, not only drug control policies as a way of controlling individual behavior, but have also uh, uh, deployed policies about drugs and addiction as a weapon sort of like persecution and oppression and racism and xenophobia under the color of addiction policy, that it also uh, is especially um, bound to lead to these sorts of interdisciplinary meetings. So the, the more I went down all of those different uh, pathways, uh, I realized like there's no possible way to, to make some sort of prescriptive, definitive uh, sense of all this. So I guess all I'm saying is that the you know my my initial naive um, <laughs> ideas about the project were totally upended, and I'm you know I'm actually really grateful to have the opportunity to just sort of like relax into a more um, 
uh, humble and kind of loose, pluralistic conception of addiction. Yeah, I think that's so fascinating because it's it seems like a very common impulse when you've gone through something that a, an experience that kind of upends your identity in some way or your sense of self or your sense of stability to go looking for some definitive answer, some really firm answer about what has happened to you, what happened. And if I, maybe if I can just, maybe if I can just research enough, I will, I will come to a, a firm understanding of, of what went wrong. And then I'll be, I don't know, safe. Um, then I'll be, then I'll have solved it. Um, and I, also had the experience that you're describing of realizing that often that that sort of naive pursuit of the thing, the answer, the explanation that's going to make you f- feel better or feel like you have a certain kind of insight is often not at all what's uh, at the end of that rainbow. Um, I loved the way that this book really didn't didn't arrive at any single set of ideas or conclusions about what even what addiction is or how it functions or how to explain it, but rather that it talks about addiction like a a, a spiritual and physical and also like social metaphorical phenomenon that humanity has been working on for a really long time. Um, there's something that just felt really I I don't know. It was a new, it was sort of a new way of thinking about it for me. And it felt really exciting. Um, Well, thank you for saying that. You know, I I have to say that you, um, it's interesting to hear that you identify that tendency in yourself too to reach for a definitive conclusion. And my, you know, my perception of your work is that you write your way out of it and you do essentially the same thing. And that's what all good literature and writing on mental health and mental suffering does. And one of the themes of the book, and I think one of the more concrete takeaways, perhaps, not that this is necessarily that kind of show, but <laughs> one of the more concrete <laughs> uh, takeaways that I that I learned from all of these different historical episodes is one of the tragedies of uh, human nature was in the reach for those definitive answers. Totally well-meaning people have so often caused incalculable harm by like addiction advocates who hold on very tightly to a particular vision of addiction that causes them to initiate these sort of like public relations wars with uh, the best emerging science that sets the field back or uh, say um, temperance advocates in the 19th century who have this really firm uh, spiritual and theological idea of sin that um, causes them to exclude uh, a whole category of people suffering with alcohol use problems like over and over and over again. The the process of reaching for those fixed views uh, has, has real stakes, real personal stakes and real um, communal stakes. I mean, it made, not to be too meta about it, but it made me realize as I was reading through your book and I would, I would feel sometimes real discomfort with this idea that you were, that you were talking about, which is that they're, you know, addiction exists on a spectrum and it's also not that different from other kinds of mental illness and that those things in fact probably exist on a spectrum and that there's not even that the diagnostic language um can often be too 
maybe uh, uh, draw draw boundaries and draw borders a little bit too uh, too firmly and in in a sort of illusory way, draw them where where they might not really exist. That was uncomfortable for me to read as mm. a person, you know, like as a person who has OCD and has written about that and, you know, and who is aware of the likelihood of um, comorbidities for, you know, as, as is true with all kind of mental illness, it's you're likely to be, and you write about this in the book, you're likely to have something else if you have one diagnosis. And I have always been so um, uh, resistant to the idea, to that idea. Uh, There was a, an element of your book that really challenged, um, that challenged that notion of the human desire to kind of reach for firmness, um, even just by identifying that desire to reach for firmness and by suggesting that that might be a thing that we are ourselves addicted to, you know, that there is this real need um, that humans seem to manifest for a, a clear category and a, and a clear plan of action that actually the realities of the human mind and human behavior and human society really resist. Yeah, you know, I would be curious to hear more, Jordan, about your discomfort because I think there are probably interesting uh, distinctions to be made. You know, like according to modern psychiatry, I have substance use disorder in remission, which as I talk about in the book is sort of like this anemic and bureaucratic label that doesn't even really stand in for addiction. It doesn't, it doesn't really capture what people traditionally call addiction. So we have this um, um, disjunction between uh, the, the sort of folk psychology and the everyday understanding of addiction uh, and the way we describe it in a diagnostic manual. But I, I think maybe that distinction is not as broad. In the case of OCD, uh, so you know, I, I don't, I don't know exactly where to go with this, but I think you know, there's probably something there in terms of like how well our diagnostic systems actually line up with our governing ideas about mental suffering. But I do, you know, like to your bigger point, I, I, I think you're exactly right that um, you know, a major commitment of mine is uh, that I, I think it can be harmful to overinvest in a firm self identity. In general, and you know, that's not just a Buddhist idea. I'm not trying to be some sort of stealth missionary. I think there's good modern psychology that says this too. That too much of an investment in a in a firm and definitive notion of who I am and who I'm supposed to be and what my actions and what my achievements mean about me um, actually causes concrete psychological harm. So I think usually, as as long as it's done carefully there's a lot of value in questioning that notion that I, I know who i am and that i i have a self and the self that i am now as 40 year old carl um is somehow strongly related to 20 year old carl who's related to 60 year old carl i mean when i was going through and researching some of my old, old journals because the only people i wasn't talking to anybody so the only <laughs> the only conversation <laughs> I was having with anyone about my addiction in the earlier stages was with myself, just writing in my journals like, "Oh, I've got to cut down," or you know, maybe I maybe I'm an alcoholic like my parents, or maybe not. And I, I had this really clear sense in the process of writing the book that like I have such compassion for this boy, like this young man who is really a boy, and he he is me, but he's not me too. 
and um not not to um not to push him away too much but just to to see him as someone different than me and that my my own conception of myself and like what it, what did it matter to me that i was able to drink or able to control my drinking uh, to to hold all of them or loosely was just really really helpful for me so i think that is a, a sort of deeper commitment um in the in the way we think about addiction for sure yeah did did it ever feel to you in the process of researching this book and realizing that that what the information was calling you to was not was a sense of looseness as opposed to a firm answer which is what you set out for did you feel a sense of loss at any point or of disappointment well, yes and no, because I think there are some firm answers. There are very specific, concrete policy changes that are needed. I mean, there are very uh, clear ways that we're falling short, that we're um, you know replicating and intensifying um, racist oppression and uh, class oppression through the way that we do our drug and addiction policy. And those, you know, those are, they're not easy fixes in the sense that these are sort of like timeless problems of hatred and division. Um, but they're, they're not, they're, they're sort of like simple, but not easy problems. Uh, so, you know, I think there was some clarity there and, um, even talking to other physicians or people who work in the addiction field, sometimes we're not as, aware of those sort of like broader policy issues. So I can at least hold on to that. I mean, that's some clarity. Uh, and it coexists, like what you're saying with the, the it coexists with the sense of loss that, uh, man, it would be nice to have an answer. I mean, it would be so nice. That's why self-help works so well, right? That um, it would be so nice just to have a roadmap for how to become the person I think I should be or how to think of myself in some sort of final and clear way uh so yeah i I think there's definitely a sense of loss there One thing that felt really clear um, in the book, which we're sort of touching on already, is how provisional our conclusions about something like addiction must be, um, that that our understanding of even the, the biology of it, um, much less the sociology of addiction, are bound to... Uh, the era in which we live and the prevailing ideas and are really subject to error for, for that reason. Um, how do you, how do you think about your, your research and your practice and your lived experience, um, against the backdrop of what we feel like we know and what we all that we cannot know and then the the likelihood that some of what we think we know is probably wrong yeah i think the word provisional is right and i i do think that there is a there's still a process of change that comes from that provisionality that, that um 
you know, even though there's not a firm conclusion, like I don't have Dr. Fisher's 12 step plan to do this or that. That's not a knock on the 12 steps. It's just (laughs) the number that came to mind. Um, uh, You know, there's still a conclusion in the sense of uh, necessary work of undoing. Like undoing is the word that comes to mind in the, in the sense that so many of our, our, our concepts and even our words about addiction, like disease or, um, you know, like permanent or uh, like the idea of a, a clear us-then dichotomy or a division between healthy and normal. Um, it, it's so freighted uh, in, in so many different ways that there's so much to be gained just from the process of undoing. And I, I think the, the history and the, the broader and social cultural view on addiction is a great route to that, that by looking across times and across cultures and across uh, fields of understanding that it, it becomes clearer and even sort of obvious that uh, it, it's really useful to um, untie some of these these notions that have been attached to addiction. So it's not it doesn't lead to some sort of very like clear uh, proscription, but it still is is a thing that I feel at least in my own personal life it's a thing that I can do uh, to. Um, sort of like relax into the things that I don't know. Can you give me an example in terms of like looking looking back through history and at, at, at an example of something that <laughs> felt like it required untying? Yeah, I guess one, the, because I said it, I mean, one, one thing that comes to mind is permanence. Uh, that um, for a long time, there's been a notion of permanence attached to the status of addiction. And you know, just one example of a historical era when that came up was the early temperance movement, not not the prohibition that led up to the say the 1920s, but the um, the first temperance movement in the 1820s, 1830s, 1840s, when um, the amount that Americans drank actually dropped by more than what dropped during legally instituted prohibition roughly a hundred years later. Um, but that drop in the 19th century came about more because of the way people thought about alcohol as an invading and, um, in their words, enslaving uh, substance or toxin or poison. So um, around that time, there was a really strong notion that once somebody had been possessed by alcohol, uh, then they were lost, at least in the early stages of the temperance movement. And, and so the status of the drunkard as a type of person who uh, uh, progressed in their problems in a in a certain way, and then um, eventually became irredeemable. It was really deeply written into the national psyche, and I, I wrote about how this is really um, is really apparent in some of the literature of the time. Some of the most popular stories that, that played off this drunkard narrative. Some of the uh, like Walt Whitman's first novel, which in some ways was his only uh, commercial success in his lifetime. Uh, and so many others like Poe and uh, Melville and, um, and and other like more pop writers of the time. So it, it, I think it's hard to escape that notion that people with addiction are, are broken or irredeemable or even in a more positive sense that people with addiction are, are like a certain way that we have an addictive personality or we were born this way or it couldn't have been any different and we will always have a, a sort of dangerous uh, propensity to drink in an uncontrolled way, and 
you know, even as I say this, I recognize, you know, like I'm still in abstinence-based recovery and I'm not, I don't plan to drink again. Um, and I think that, uh, this notion of like being fundamentally other because of this, um, permanence, it can be actually really dehumanizing and pessimistic and, uh, can undercut, uh, people's, including my own like capacity for, for change and growth. Yeah. You talked a lot or you wrote a lot about, um, how those ideas intersect with an individual's capacity for hope and for feeling agency again about this categorical declaration of what addiction is or who the addict is um certainly for people who who want to hold the the notion of addiction far away from themselves but also sometimes there can be relief even in saying oh well, this is just this is a, just a disease it is medical but that that can really encroach upon somebody's sense of agency or or their hope yeah, I think we can find hope both ways. You know, it's just a double-edged sword. You know, I've seen and I describe cases where people had a really firm idea of, say, like the disease model, and that was actually a route for compassion and care and support. And then uh, there are other ways that it's very hopeful. And today, I think it's very hopeful to have this more provisional and open-ended and flexible and sort of spectrum-oriented view of addiction that uh, it, it opens up the door for a lot of capacity for change. Thresholds is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshwood of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar Strauss and Drew. I'm Jordan Kissner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kissner. We'll see you next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.